0: uh Romans chapter thirteen is this on it doesn't really sound like it's on here. okay Romans uh, chapter thirteen um we're not gonna read that whole text right away i'll uh, actually it's romans twelve i don't even know what i don't even know what i 'm preaching on today so <laughs> romans chapter twelve we're not i'll read the text later as we go through but um before we do let's pray one more time. Lord, I pray that you would make us to understand today the way of your precepts. Give us grace so that we might meditate on your wondrous works. Lord, edify your people with your word and bring sinners to faith in Jesus through your powerful spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Romans, Romans chapter 12 and Romans 13 is what we'll be looking at today. Um, good news can change your life. Uh, two years ago, at just a few days, uh, I think it was January 20th, Shelly and I found out that we were having another child. It was really good news. Now, we were <laughs> a little shocked and surprised and worried, <laughs> but it, it, it's good news. It was good news then. It continues to be good news because uh, Zoe has brought a lot of joy to us and others as well. Good news, especially really big good news, can be life-changing, and, and Zoe was life-changing uh, to the point that we don't even know what life would be like without her now. We thank God for her, And uh, for that, and we thank God for the surprise, uh, the the blessing that we never asked for. Paul's kind of getting at that in this transition point in Romans chapter 12. That is, that good news changes your life. In Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 11, Paul has been explaining the glorious good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That news that Christ died for sinners should be good news indeed. And if we really take to heart what Jesus has done, if we really understand the depth of our depravity that we looked at in Romans 1 and Romans 2 and part of Romans 3, if we really understand the the depths of our depravity, and truly grasp the grace and mercy of God that's found in Jesus Christ. We can't get that without it changing the whole direction of our life. Paul has been expounding this good news of the gospel up until this point. It is indeed glorious good news. And now he's transitioning into giving, giving us more practical aspects how how it's you know preachers are t- told when you preach you're supposed to give application so in other words you're telling the doctrine and then you say so what what difference does that make this is the so what section of romans given all the doctrine that paul has laid out now what how do i respond to this glorious news and this is a typical pattern for paul if you look at ephesians The first half of Ephesians is doctrinal, the second half is practical considerations. Romans, uh, three quarters of it is doctrinal, and the last quarter is practical, and we arrive at that point today. So what? What are we going to do about this? The title of the sermon today is The Transformed Life. The gospel indeed does transform sinners, transforms our lives. And so we're going to look at this text under three headings. One, believers are called to live a transformed life. We'll see that in verses one through two of Romans 12. And then number two, the transformed life is described here in Romans 12, 3 through 1310. And then finally, number three, the transformed life. Is further encouraged in the last four verses. Oh, well, yeah, last four verses of chapter 13, verses 11 through uh, 11 through 14. Believers are called to live a transformed life. Believe the transformed life is described then, and the transformed life is further encouraged. We see that Paul calls us to this kind of transformed life in the first verses of. So we're called here to live a holy life. Paul tells us that we're to present our bodies as a sacrifice to God by the mercies of God. You see, Paul has been talking about the mercies of God up until this point. He's talked about our guilt. He's talked about God's grace in Jesus Christ. And now he's going to tell us how we should gratefully live in light of that mercy that we've received if we've embraced Christ what we are to do is to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. This points back to the Old Testament when the sacrifices were given. Of course, then they were they were uh, killed and put on the altar and burned up. In the burnt offering, the entire off the entire animal was put on the altar offer and offered to God, so that the whole animal was dedicated to God. Paul seems to be saying then that. Christians, people who have responded to the grace of God because they're sinners, by the mercies of God, are to give themselves as living sacrifice. Give themselves entirely. Now, it says body, but this stands for the whole person. You can't sacrifice a soul per se, you can only sacrifice the body. So the idea is the whole person, all of you, is to be dedicated to the Lord. Body, soul, mind, spirit, conscience, everything about you is to be dedicated to the Lord. Everything is to be presented to him, and you become a living sacrifice. Paul calls each one of us to do this. He, te- he further tells us that he warns us not to be conformed to this world. So, so part of being transformed is giving ourselves, dedicating ourselves wholly to the Lord. The other part is don't be conformed to this world. The world is, is there, so there's two kingdoms in this world. There's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. There's the church and the world. The world is all those who are opposed to Christ. Now, they may not be outwardly opposed to him. Not everybody has to be, it's not just Satanists who are opposed to Christ, but people who reject Christ, people who don't follow them. Maybe people who go to church, but they don't follow Jesus Christ as Lord. They would be included in that category of world. And and this this world is trying to get everyone to conform to its image. They want everybody to be exactly like them. Now, when I early in my Christian life, I went to a fundamentalist church and And in in the fundamentalist church, and most of you have probably been there, (laughs) there were three things that you didn't do, and all these things were worldly. Go to R-rated movies, listen to rock and roll music, and smoke cigarettes. Those were the three things that constituted the definition of worldliness. Now, I agree that some of those things probably aren't wise to do. I'm not advocating those things. The, The problem with fundamentalism is the same problem with Phariseeism, in the Old Testament, they only get to the surface. You see, I could give up r to movies, and well, rock and roll might be hard to give up, but I, I could give those things up, and smoking cigarettes, you can give those things up. Those are pretty easy. The problem is the things in your heart that, that still linger on even as you've been a Christian for many years and and the world wants to conform you not just outwardly so that you look like them cuz you're listening to the same music and going to the same movies and you're smoking the same things they're smoking the world wants to conform you not just outwardly but inwardly as well and so it's it's not just the outward things but it's inward as well it it's their ideas their philosophies and we consume them when we watch TV and consume media, not, not just the news media, but also any other show we watched it, it has an impact. It's trying to conform us to that image. The world doesn't like it when we resist. They want us to conform. They want everybody to be like them inside and out. But the Bible teaches us that we're to present ourselves to the Lord. We're to give ourselves wholly to him and not to the world not to the worldly philosophies, not to the worldly desires for greed, wealth, and power. Those things aren't what Christians are to give themselves to. We're to give ourselves to the Lord. We're to resist this conformity. Paul tells us how we're to resist this when he says later in verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, notice that it says, Be Transformed. It doesn't say transform yourself. This is an, a passive voice where it's, it's, it's saying we're being acted upon. We are being transformed. Now, there's part for us to play. We'll get that. In, um, but Paul said and what the part to play is, it's by the renewal of the mind. How do we renew our minds? By exposing ourselves to the word of God by exposing ourselves to the other means of grace, especially the Word of God, because we're to be transformed by the power of our mind. So the Word of God needs to fill our mind. And I'm not just saying reading and studying the Word, although that's important, but hearing God's Word preached every Sunday, reading good Christian books that help you understand the Christian faith and the Bible better, All of those things would be included. We need to fill our minds with these things. We need to know the doctrines, the truths of God's word in order to combat this conformity that the world is trying to push us into, this mold that they want us to look like. I need my notes. So... This is what Paul is calling us to. This is what, more importantly, what Christ is calling us to. If the gospel has transformed your life, it ought to be continuously transforming your life. God works through the gospel to transform us. God works through his word by his spirit to transform us again and again. One of the reasons we have to come to church every Sunday is because we need to be reminded of the word of God. We need the law preached to us so that we remember that we're sinners. We need the gospel preached to us to remember that Christ is the answer and the comfort that we need. We need every week to be reminded of this so our minds are continuously transformed. We spend six days a week out in the world listening to the worldly talk at work, hearing worldly things on the television, hearing worldly things all around us, we need this time where we can gather with God's people so that we can resist this conformity that the world wants to put on us. This being here, gathering to hear God's word, is an important aspect of not being transformed, not giving in. In fact, I've heard there there was a study done that, This had to do, you know, the thing in Charlottesville with where all those guys carried those tiki torches. Um, You know, if you're in a crowd and you're chanting together, that binds you together in a way that you wouldn't get bound together separately. And music does that. When we're singing together, it, it psychologically does something to bind us together. No doubt the preaching of the word does the same thing. It's important for us to be here because we need each other to not be conformed to the world. The world is against us. Matthew just told us in Sunday school that West Lafayette, Indiana, is trying to ban biblical counseling, essentially, so that we can't tell anyone uh, that it's wrong to be uh, a lesbian or gay or transgender. We can't counsel them and help them to put away those sins. The world's against us. The world will be opposed to it. The world's not going to like it. Politicians, political parties will be against us <laughs> if, we're conformed, if we're not conformed to the world but transformed through Christ. So brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ calls us to be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Has this glorious good news of the gospel transformed your mind? Have you presented your bodies as a living sacrifice to the Lord? Consider your guilt before God without Christ. Consider what he did in dying for your sins. Consider what the Father did in sending you his beloved Son. Consider the spirit that the Father and Son Send together to dwell in sinners to transform them. Consider the glorious works of God and present yourself as a living sacrifice to him. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul further goes on in the next passage, and this is the largest portion we'll read a little bit at a time. What he's doing here is describing the transformed life. Uh, we'll see here, and I'll have four points under this main heading of what believers are to look like, transformed believers are to look like. So let's look at first at verses 3 through 8 of Romans 12. For the, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of themselves more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts, then, that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Paul tells us here in this passage that believers are to soberly assess themselves and serve one another. So if if your life has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will be one who soberly assesses yourself and serves one another. Paul tells us in verse 3 that we're not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. He says that we're to have sober judgment, that we need to consider ourselves in the light of God's grace. The reality is all that we are and all that we have is from the grace of God. If there's anything good in our lives, if there's anything good in us, All of this has come from the grace of God. There's nothing that we have to brag about or boast about. The only thing we bring to the equation is our sinfulness. And Christ, thankfully, by grace, takes care of that. And so we need to understand that it's the grace of God that makes us what we are. And when we understand it's the grace of God that makes us what we are, we will give ourselves sober judgment and hopefully be able to more soberly assess other people in relationship to ourselves. And so we assess ourselves soberly and then we serve one another we, because we realize I'm not above you and you're not above me. We're equal in the eyes of the Lord. And even that comes even with the gifts. Paul mentions here, every believer is, is given gifts from God. Jeremiah mentioned that Christ means anointed ones. Christ was anointed uh, by the Spirit, and Christ, the anointed one, gave all, anointed all his people with the Spirit and gave all of them spiritual gifts. These spiritual gifts are to be used to serve one another. Here in this body... Primarily, and first of all, that's what these gifts are for. In verse 6, he says, having gifts that differ, and they're all different, but according to the grace given to us, let us use them. We need to make use of these gifts that God has given us to serve one another. I had a, and it's important, it's really important to see that the sobriety which with which we examine ourselves and the gifts that we use for one another go together. I had a, when I was pastoring one of the churches I was pastor at, there was a man at the church who was, his first priority in the church was to take care of the building. He went there every morning to check to make sure the furnace was running in the winter. He went there every, we had flooding, so he always went there to check make sure there was no flooding in the basement, he made sure the electricity was on. There was no problems at the church. I thought this was a great deal. This guy really cared about the church. And it w- he worked and, and did a good job, and I appreciated it. And then, of course, I found out that he thought that ought to be my number one priority as well. And that began to cause friction between us because he thought that I wasn't doing my job as a pastor because my number one job should be the maintenance of the church. Well, I didn't see it that way, so of course, as I said, that led to problems. The problem that we had in this, in this relationship was that I think he assessed his gifts, <laughs> and, and, and because he thought his gift was the most valuable one and the most important one, then he began looking down on me that I'm not doing my job because I'm not doing the most important thing. If this brother would have recognize that every believer has different gifts and a different contribution to give to the church, things would have went a whole lot better if he would have seen that it's his. Pri- it's good that he has that priority because it's a ble- it was a blessing to the whole church that he made sure of those things, and then saw that my job was different yet still valuable. It would have. Been a lot better for everyone involved. They eventually left the church. They were so upset about these things. Um, but it doesn't have to be that way if we soberly assess ourselves and use our gifts to serve one another. And and these gifts that God has given us, they're primarily for the church, but they're more than that. We use these gifts out in our vocation, out in the world as well, as we uh, as we love our neighbor. So we need. That believers soberly assess themselves and serve one another. And as we do that, the church will grow in hopefully, uh, definitely in quality, but hopefully in quantity as God blesses as well. Secondly, believers genuinely love. Let's look. Let me read for you verses 9 through 21 quickly. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This passage is really difficult to summarize. I actually wrote down, I made a list of each command in this passage, and there's 24 commands. Um, Passages like this are dreadful for me when it comes to preaching because um, we could spend time on each one of these, but there's 24 of them, and we don't have that much time, so we have to summarize. And I think the I think the best summary is love. In the first section, verses nine through 13, that's pretty obvious. But then in verses 14 and following to the end of the chapter, this this has to do with blessing those who curse you. So the the idea is you love your brothers in the first section and love your, even love your enemies in the second section. But we're to genuinely love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And especially we need to understand how to love our enemies. This is, and Jesus is our example here. Jesus was so hated by his enemies that they crucified and killed him. Yet we see hear him on the cross saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Later on in the very beginning of the book of Acts, thousands of people came to faith in Christ. Some of them may have been among the crowd that was shouting, crucify him. Paul the persecutor became became Paul the persecuted. He, He was killing Christians. He was fighting against God. But God loved him and saved him and made him who he is, the Paul the Apostle. So we, we love our enemies by the grace given to us by Jesus Christ who paved the way for us. He loved his enemies so that we could love our enemies in him. He's, he is an example, but he's more than an example because the example gives us grace. He gives us strength, the power to do this. And as we see the world turn, our especially our nation, turn more and more godless, the enemies are going to increase. We need to be careful, brothers and sisters. The, the easy way is hate. <laughs> it's easy to abstract these people and just make them ideas and, and speak bad, nasty things about them on Twitter or Facebook. And if you want to see an example, you can go to Twitter and Facebook and you'll see all kinds of this happening all the time. We need to remember that though though these people stand for things that we don't believe in and we, we utterly hate their ideas, these people are are people made in the image of God. These are people who need the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the most important lessons I learned in college I had a professor, we we had a lot of disagreements. But I respected him because I saw him uh, with his wife and how he treated his wife. I saw him at his church serving people at, at the church. He was a kind, gracious man. He said some things I disagreed with him, but I still loved him. But when I would read a book, somebody would say the same thing as this professor, and I'd say, well, he's just an idiot. The difference is I had a relationship with the one and with the other. And what I learned is that before I just throw this book off and say he's an idiot, I need to realize that the guy who wrote this might be as nice as my professor, and I should be kind to him. Now, the guys on the other end of Twitter and Facebook may be nasty, horrible people, but that doesn't authorize us to, to be nasty in return. We are not, we're called not to take revenge, it says clearly in this passage. We're to love our enemies. Brothers and sisters, I know it's hard. The first part of the section, to love one another, to show genuine love is hard. We all all know that's what we're supposed to do. This isn't new news to us. It's easy to hear it. It's easy to preach it. It's easy to tell people that you got to love one another. It's really hard to do it. But again... As we fail, as we sin, it points out our guilt. It returns us to Christ in whom we find grace. And that encourages us to try again, by the grace of God, to continue loving one another. So believers soberly assess. Believers genuinely love. And then they submit to authorities. I'll read for you Romans 13, 1 through 7. What is owed to them? Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Um, Well, time is irrelevant, but to this, I'm not going to say a whole lot about this because if you've attended this church for more than six months, you know this is an issue that Pastor Mac cares about very deeply. And you have heard about this topic from him many times. Uh, So I don't have a whole lot to add to what Mac has said. The point of this passage, though, I think is that we need to understand is that as Christians, we are to strive as much as we possibly can and continue to be faithful to Christ, be the best citizens that we can be. We're to live in submission to those in authority. I think John Gill's comments on this passage are, Appropriate, they're lengthy, but I'll read them to you anyway. He says, Subjection to the civil magistrates designs and includes all duties relative to them, such as showing them respect, honor, and reverence suitable to their stations, speaking well of them and their administration, using them with candor, not bearing hard upon them for little matters, and allowing for ignorance of the secret springs of many of their actions and conduct, which, if known, might greatly justify them, wishing well to them and praying constantly, earnestly and heartily for them, observing their laws and injunctions, obeying their lawful commands, which do not contradict the laws of God, nature and right reason, and paying them their just dues and lawful tribute to support them in their office and dignity. Now, you know, brothers and sisters, as well as I do, that this is really easy to do when the person in, in persons in office is someone with whom you agree. The difficulty is praying for, and, and doing all these things. I, I mean, this, this whole thing hurts when I <laughs> read it because uh, I fail at this so bad, but to speak well of them, uh, e- even when it's somebody in office that you don't agree with. Or worse, that their ideas and the and the things they're trying to promote are completely contrary to the Christian faith. It's really hard to even pray at that point, because what do you pray, Lord? Please stop them. And and that might be what we pray, but we we have to remember to do it with a submissive attitude and all the things that John Gill and more importantly the Scripture says. It's hard. But again, Jesus is our example. He he died. He died for his, even though he was submissive to the authorities, he was submissive to his government, he was submissive to his parents. Again, he paves the way and gives us grace where we fail. So believers soberly assess, they genuinely love, and by God's grace, they submit to authorities. And then, Finally, they obey God's law. We see this in verses 8 through 10, where Paul says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the, lo- uh, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Paul is calling us here to continue to obey the moral law of God. You'll notice he quotes from some of the Ten Commandments and says that these are summed up in one word, love your neighbor. And he also says, if there's any other commandment, you it's summed up in this one word, to love your neighbor. One of the things that... I'll, I want to make clear is that God's moral law has not changed, will not change. It will forever remain the same. Paul is calling us to obey that moral law of God that does not change. It's summarized in the Old Testament in the Ten Commandments. It's summarized in, by Christ as the two great commandments. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul sums it up here. You shall love the neighbor as yourself. God's law doesn't change. We, are, we continue to obey the law of God. Now, there are laws that do change. Um, we no longer sacrifice animals. We, we don't do that anymore.'t um, it It's okay if you wore fabric with, uh, that are mixed fabrics, if you wore clothing with mixed fabrics. It's okay. We don't live under that covenant anymore. There are are positive laws of God that have to do with the circumstance of the time, whether it's a a different covenant relating to their faith or a a different situation regarding the political situation. We need need discernment and wisdom. We need the help of the Spirit to help us understand the Bible. But one thing we need to be clear about, in spite of the, the voices today, Within the church, to say contrary, God's, still, God's moral law never changes. That moral law was the same when he gave it to Adam, the same when he gave it to Moses. It continues to remain the same for us today. And we're called as Christians to obey the law. We fail miserably, but again, we're pointed, that just points us to our guilt and gives us encouragement to turn to Christ where we find forgiveness in him by the grace of God we pick ourselves up and and we strive in gratitude to live in obedience to God's commandment. God doesn't God doesn't leave us on our own. He doesn't say, Okay, I saved you, now good luck. Do all the rest by yourself. He continues to work. And he continues to work by pointing out our sins and turning him to Christ where we find grace sufficient to make us obedient. So the the transformed life of a believer looks like this it's it's people who soberly assess themselves genuinely love submit to authorities and and obey god's law just as jesus says if you love me keep my commandments brother friends i ask you does this describe you yes i know it's not going to describe you perfectly But increasingly, more and more, are you being transformed? Are you being more and more transformed to look like what Paul describes in this passage? If you are, this is a good indication that God has changed your heart. God has transformed you through his gospel and saved you by his grace. If you don't see this transformed life, something's wrong. You can't get... You can't comprehend this good news and go on with life as usual. Something is going to change when you understand that death, sin, and hell have been defeated in Jesus Christ. If nothing changes, there's a problem. You need to seek Christ and find Him by His grace. And He calls you today to come to Him, believe in Him, accept His word, God will transform even a sinner like me, even a sinner like you. God will transform us and make us into the kind of people Paul describes there. Paul goes on finally to close. He motivates us again uh, to live a transformed life. He uses a different analogy. So let's read verses 11 through 14. Besides this, You know the time that that hour has come for you to wake from sleep. How appropriate at the end of the service. It's time to wake up. (laughs) For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Paul is encouraging us. Instead of calling us to to make ourselves sacrifices, he's calling us to realize what time it is. The darkness is over. Christ has died. Light has come. And if light has come and believers are children of the light, we ought to act like children of the light, not the children of the darkness. There's a transforming thing has happened in our world in the coming of Jesus Christ. If you trust Christ by faith, that transformation that happens in the world will be a transformation in your own heart. You will go from the kingdom of darkness and be transferred into the kingdom of His dear Son, the light of the world, Jesus Christ. Paul is calling us to put off these these works of darkness and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. This passage here was the passage that St. Augustine opened up to when he heard some kids yelling in Latin, take up and read. He opened to this passage and the Lord used used this passage to turn St. Augustine from light to darkness. I pray the Lord will use this, this passage to open your eyes who are in darkness and turn you to light. If you're a Christian, I... Pray, I encourage you, I call on you as the Christ and the Apostle Paul did to live a sacrificial life of humility, love, submission, and obedience by putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, by being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that your spirit would indeed transform each one of us we all may be on a different place in our journey, yet you can reach us there through your spirit. For those who have been in Christ for a long time, I pray that your word will remind remind them again of, of what Christ has done, and they'll more heartily pursue you, having been transformed. I pray for those who aren't yet on the Christian journey, that by grace they would turn from their darkness and turn to the light in Jesus Christ. And we pray it all in his name. Amen.